acorns are jumping off my Chinese house. Two ducks in my spyglass, furry as a mouse, it's a suey nature, a suey nature thing. It's a suey nature, a suey nature thing. It's a mighty fine, mighty fine, mighty fine Welcome to Yarns at Yin Hu, a podcast about the fiber arts and other post-apocalyptic skills. Episode 208, Make Awesome and Mend. Saturday, October 27th, 2018. I'm your host, Sarah. You can find me on social media as Sarah Pomegranate. The Yarns at Yinhu podcast has a Facebook page and it's available on iTunes. Each time I post an episode, I put show notes, photographs, and links to things I talk about on my website, yarnsatyinhu.com. Today's episode includes the following segments, the back porch, the front porch, yarn lover at large, and off the shelf. I'd like to give a special shout out to the following people, Beverly Army, Chatty Kathy P, Maya, Carol, P4 Chen, and Allison on the train. Hello, everyone, and welcome. It's a very dark and dreary Saturday morning here in Delaware Water Gap as I record, and the rain has been really thundering down, so you may hear some of that picked up by the microphone on this episode. This week, I've been coming down off the high of visiting Rhinebeck, and I will talk about my trip with Samuel to the New York Sheep and Wool Festival a little later in the episode. First, I'll talk a little bit about what is on my needles. After completing a really fun pair of socks in the Northumberland yarn base dyed by Carol of Foster Sheep Farm, I have cast on another pair of socks. This time, the yarn I'm using is dyed by Joanna of Knit Spin Farm, and she has some intriguing self-striping colorways that are inspired by produce that she's growing on her farm. So the one I purchased is Radish, and the colors are taken from five different varieties of radishes that she grows on her farm. They are Black Spanish, Zlata, Easter Egg, Cherry Bell, and French Breakfast. So there's pinks, red, green, and a black. And the stripes are of varying thicknesses, so that also makes it a lot of fun to knit with. And I've just done a simple 2 by 2 rib after the cast on. And then each time the color changes, I'm doing a round of slip one with yarn in back, knit one, to give it a little bit of um, a ragged, toothy edge around the color changes. The base that I chose, Joanna dyes her yarn in a few different bases. 
The base that I chose is Tarhi Fingering, which is 90% superwash Tarhi and 10% nylon. It comes in a really generous put up. It's 115 grams, not 100 grams like most sock yarn. And that's 466 yards. So this is really beefy, sturdy yarn. I love the way it's knitting up. It looks to me like it will be very hard wearing. And it also makes me want to purchase one by one all of Joanna's produce inspired self-striping yarns. She has one in her shop right now called Commentator which is based on varieties of potatoes that she grows, and that could be next on my list. I've cast on both socks. I have the um, ribbed cuff done on both socks, and now on one of them I am just starting the heel flap. And I was thinking about, because this yarn has wide stripes and thin stripes, I was thinking about whether or not I could get the entire heel flap and heel turn in on the wide stripes and then just return to the thin stripes with the rest of my knitting down the foot of the sock. So I'm going to try it and see if I can do it. I'll be doing my typical heel flap, heel turn, and double gusset under the heel. And I'll see how I do with color management and these wide and thinner stripes on the socks but that's it's just a, a lot of fun to knit and these are going pretty quickly the other thing on my needles is my poncho knit from my hand processed hand spun hand dyed hog island yarn my initial plan to knit the church mouse yarns and tees version of the poncho um unraveled because I feel that the yarn I was using was is really too beefy to work with that design. It's for a fingering or a DK weight and the yarn that I'm using is really a, a pretty generous worsted perhaps Aran in places weight yarn. So I pulled all that out and I started again casting on 164 stitches with a tubular cast on, and then I did a one by one rib, and then I worked that into a five by one rib after a few inches. So that would be 162 stitches to get 27 repeats of a five by one rib, but I added one stitch at each end because I like to slip the last stitch on each row, I'm working back and forth, and then knit the first stitch on each row, and that gives the piece a nice finished edge. My current idea for this poncho is to knit flat for maybe 18 to 24 inches, maybe more, I'm just not sure, before joining the piece in the round and then starting to do some decreases in the ribbing so that it goes from split-sided poncho to really cozy, luxurious cowl. I'm not sure if I can achieve it, 
but it's fun to experiment. And what I've learned about this Hog Island yarn is it, it takes a beating as I've already ripped it out and started re-knitting it. And I am using US 9 needles. I began on US 7s and then I switched to US 9s to try and get a little bit drapier fabric. I feel like the other problem with the knitting in that original church mouse design is that my fabric was a little too dense to have the kind of drape that was needed in that poncho. So I just went up a few needle sizes and it's knitting up nicely on the nines, but I'm not sure if my overall concept for this accessory will work, I think until I, I try it. So I'll just have to see how it goes. It's knitting pretty quickly and then make adjustments as needed. Lately, I have felt equal to mending some of my finished knitted garments. It all started on Sunday morning at Rhinebeck. I had selected my Let Lopey Humulus sweater to wear because it was very, very cold, high of 40 on Sunday. And I thought that would be the perfect thing to wear. And I brought several layers to fit underneath. I brought the black long sleeve tee that fit perfectly underneath the sweater. And then I brought another kind of thermal top. And I really wanted to add that. But when I put it on, what I realized was this beautiful wide neckline of the humulus revealed the blinding white of my thermal top. And then I put a scarf on and that didn't really cover it. And I just hated the way it looked. So I thought, well, I'll just unpick the neckline and I'll cinch it up a little bit. But I was just coming off of having finished Lovage, which was knit from the bottom up. And I bound off at the neckline and I envisioned being able to just unpick where I had woven in and then just unravel the neckline. But Humulus is knit top down. So I had to unpick every stitch. It wouldn't unravel. I had to pull it out. And I realized what was happening as I was pulling out the Let Lopi is that I was stripping it and weakening it. I didn't have extra yarn and I ended up with kind of a mess. It was not wise of me to try making that mend the morning of the event. Nevertheless, I was able to salvage enough yarn that I could do one decrease round, a teeny little bit of ribbing, and then I didn't even have enough yarn to bind off. I just strung all the stitches onto a single strand, wove the end in, and then just covered the whole thing with my scarf. It worked and it pulled in the neckline and really kept me warm. It wasn't just the gaping neckline and the white showing around. It was also that I felt a little exposed without my sweater kind of coming up around my neck a little bit. 
And so when I got home, I decided that I would make a more thorough repair. I got out extra yarn. I have a whole sweater's worth of that charcoal let lopey leftover. And I thought carefully about the shape of the neckline that I wanted. I love the way that looked. And in my finished project photos that were taken on a very mild winter day, I love the shape of that neckline and the way it exposes your neck and your clavicle a little bit. But it's not practical. And that's a sweater that I really want to be able to wear outdoors, almost in place of a coat. Uh, It would be too bulky to try and cover it with a coat. So the idea is to put layers underneath and wear that on top. And so I thought a, a more modest neckline with a little more coverage would be appropriate. So I did some, I picked up all the stitches and then I knit in the opposite direction. I did some short row shaping around the back neck and even a bit around the sides of the neckline. And then I did some decreases and I did some proper ribbing and my usual tubular bind off. And I'm much happier with the usefulness of this garment. I still think the way the original neckline is written is really flattering and beautiful. And knit in a different weight yarn, I think that may be appropriate. If it's a lighter weight sweater that you could wear under a coat, fine. But that wasn't going to work with my let lopey. So I'm really pleased about that. And when I knit a let lopey sweater again, if it is from the top down, I will make sure that the neckline has a bit more coverage. I do plan to get some contrasting colors and use up the rest of that let lopey this winter. I think knitting a really bulky, warm sweater is a great January project or February project. And so I'm thinking about the sea change sweater, but I need a few contrasting colors in order to do that. This mend of the Humulus sweater gave me the courage to think more carefully about the Lada dress. I knit the Lada dress in August and upon finishing noticed that the yarn I had used has like occasionally a fuchsia haze and that there was a big band of this hazy area around my hips, around my widest part, and also that I had knit the skirt of this dress a little short. I like to wear it as a dress, not a tunic, and it's a little short. It could use a little length. So I thought of how to solve both of those problems with one repair. So I snipped into the dress where the end of this fuchsia band occurred. And then I was able to unravel about two inches of knitting and then pick up all the stitches on the bottom part, which was now totally detached, pick up all of those stitches, put them on a needle. And the yarn that I used, I believe it's dyed in the wool and then spun, it's Beaver Slide Dry Goods 2-ply fingering weight yarn. 
It held up beautifully to this mend. Every stitch remained right in its place so I could just put the needle through. I didn't have to fight with that at all. So that was kind of the least scary part was picking up all of the stitches because the knitting was not unraveling at all. So that was kind of a relief. So I had the bottom portion completely on a needle and then I unraveled and then picked up the top portion and put that back on the needles. And then I very carefully counted all of the stitches. Because this was happening along the hip, this problem area, there were some increases there. So I want to make sure that I do increases appropriate so that when I'm about to join and graft that entire dress circumference together, I have the exact stitch count that I need, not one stitch off. So I counted everything three times very carefully, wrote it down, and figured out the number of increases I would need to do over the course of my knitting. And now it's, it's pretty simple. It's stockinette in the round, and I am alternating uh, two rows of each from two different balls of yarn so that hopefully I can avoid this haziness along that area. And I ripped out about two inches of knitting and I plan to put in five or six inches of knitting so that I add a little bit more length to the dress. Ultimately, with a little more length, I would like to be putting in more increases to give it a bit of an A-line, but I can't do that because in order to graft properly, I need to have that exact stitch tamp stitch count. So I think it will be okay. And I think it will go quickly. I think for me, I think that just imagining this repair was more difficult than actually doing it. Once I made the snip and once I saw especially how easily it would be to pick up those stitches, it really calmed me down and made me eager to complete the repair. So that I hope will be done soon. Of course, I've been daydreaming about upcoming projects. And one thing that I hope to tackle in the coming weeks is sewing the Haramir jacket that I have completely cut out and ready to go. I just haven't felt the brain power to begin working on the sewing of this jacket yet, but it really is on the horizon now. And so I've been thinking a lot about this Blacker Yarns tour. I bought two skeins of this birthday yarn in the pink color, and I want to knit something that will go with that blazer. It's kind of an oversized blazer, so I envision it being really a three-season garment, and I want something that will kind of coordinate with it and look great. Initially, I had been thinking of knitting a fringed cowl, but now I've been thinking more about a hat and mittens set. And so I've wasted a lot of time on Ravelry looking at hat and mittens sets because I just have this idea that I want the same motif or pattern design to be featured on the hat 
and on a pair of mittens. And I've looked at several different ones, and the one that keeps calling my attention is Kirsten Kapoor's Wood Hollow Hat and Mitts, which are available for individual purchase and as a little ebook for a reduced price. They have some beautiful cables. They're knit in worsted weight yarn, and one of the challenges with this tour is to think about how to treat it. Treat it like an Aran weight yarn. It's marked Aran, but the yardage is more compatible with a Cascade 220 because it's 100 grams, 219 yards. So I guess I could treat it like a worsted weight yarn, especially to get something really warm for winter. And I think for mittens, that's essential. I have only one pair of mittens, and that's a pair of thrummed mittens that I knit a few years ago. I've knit lots of mitts, but not a lot of mittens. So that keeps grabbing my attention, the Wood Hollow Hat and Mitts by Kirsten Kapoor. The other yarn that features prominently in my knitting daydreams is my Blacker Yarns Brushwork. I have a sweater quantity, a generous sweater quantity of this yarn in the beautiful purple colorway. And recently I noticed on Ravelry Kate Davies' Ducat design, which is a very boxy cropped sweater with some beautiful slip stitch rib detail at the cuffs and at the hemline. And I was thinking that that might be really cool turned into a tunic. So I've been turning that over in my mind and looking at pictures of that sweater and thinking about maybe undertaking a tunic length sweater or maybe even a dress length sweater using Kate Davies' Ducat as the base. It seems like a kind of a clever construction. And since I'm reading her memoir, I thought it would be a nice companion to be knitting on one of her designs at the same time. And to my knowledge, I don't think I've knit any of her designs. So I'd really like to undertake something like that. And Ducat is a contender. Samuel and I went to the New York Sheep and Wool Festival together last weekend. It was his first time attending, and he has already declared that he always wants to go every year. He had a great time, and he was... I asked him if what I had said, you know, stories that I had told about the festival really prepared him for what he was about to see... An experience, and he said no, that nothing that I could have said would have really prepared him for what it was like. And he was struck mostly just by the vast number of people really being passionate about the same sorts of things. I guess just the overall size of the festival on Saturday struck him most prominently and then the second most prominent thing was the falafel line (laughs) 
we had just entered the festival. Um, we kept musicians hours that weekend. So we got there around noon. We had just entered the festival and we were headed up the hill and I saw Beverly Army and we had agreed to make a swap. She was standing in the falafel line. So we exchanged our goodies and then I saw Chatty Kathy and we had a chat and we kept walking <clears throat> and then he said, is this still the falafel line that we were walking? We were sort of walking against traffic. I said, yeah. And then we were looking around and walking and he said, is this still the falafel line? And I said, yes, it's still the falafel line. He was shocked. I said, it's really good falafel. Do you want to get in line? He's like, no way. It's like three hours long. I'm like, no, it moves. So people wait all year for this falafel. So that was the second thing. And uh, then he was really impressed with the number of things that interested him. I guess I looked at an, a lot of booths and different things and products that I probably wouldn't have given as much attention to, but he was interested in them. So it was a, a way to see the festival in a totally different way. And we really focused on things that he was curious about. And we made different kinds of purchases too. So one of the things we purchased was some art, some fiber art by Susan Levi Gorlick. I'd seen her things and walked by them many times, but Samuel was really curious about them and wanted to select one. We found a really beautiful one for our home. So that was a great purchase. Uh, he was also really interested in some of the farm equipment and the vast assortment of things um, from ready-made to truly raw materials. Uh, some other purchases he made, he made, um, he got some felted inserts for shoes and slippers. And we also got some yarn for him for another version of his string band cowl. It's been five years since I knit him this cowl. It's a Stephen West design and I knit it with alpaca yarn, almost a lace weight yarn held double. And hes it's still in great shape. He wears it a lot. And I thought it would be a great idea to make another one for him with a slightly different color scheme. And I wanted to use wool, but he's very, very sensitive. And this goes around the neck. So we went to the Battenkill Fibers booth and I had him look at and touch and feel some of Karen Kennedy's Cormo and Merino yarn, which it has a super, super soft hand, but it's wool. And he agreed that he, he thought he could wear that. So we bought a skein of Cormo and then we bought a skein of Merino yarn in a nearly black, this it's beautiful, beautiful stuff. This is from Mr. Darcy's daughter. So Mr. Darcy was a black merino ram that Karen Kennedy had. And now she is making yarn from the fleece of some of Mr. Darcy's daughters. It's the purest black. I mean, it's not quite black, but it's one of the best 
natural dark colors that I've seen. And it's a DK weight, so I think it will work perfectly for this cowl. And then we did a lot of button shopping because this string band cowl features buttons. So we bought some vintage buttons and then even though we had purchased those, he really fell in love with some beautiful apple wood buttons. So he bought those as well. And uh, we had a lot of fun shopping for those things. I'm trying to think of what... We didn't make a lot of purchases. I'll put a photograph of everything except gifts that I've purchased for other people uh, because I don't want them to see. But I'll put a photograph of our combined Rhinebeck haul on the photographs for this episode. The other thing, um, well, I took a pitifully small number of photos and I don't have a single photo of me wearing the Lovage sweater on Saturday. I didn't take one. I didn't ask Samuel to take one. Everyone I interacted with, we were just busy talking and I didn't really get photos. Maybe Fiber Nymph Lisa has a photo, but it's a selfie, I think, of the two of us. So, yeah, there's not a single photo of me wearing the Lovage sweater. Ah, But I was very attracted to taking photographs of the Valet Black Nose Sheep, the world's cutest sheep, which came to Rhinebeck and which I've been reading about and thinking about ever since. When I posted the photo on Instagram, someone asked why the sheep was wearing a bell and why sheep wear bells in general. And it seems like, particularly in Switzerland, where these sheep originated, it's common for all of them or many of them to wear these beautiful bells. But in general, one or several sheep in a flock will wear a bell as a protective measure. Sometimes sheep are not located within fences. They are roaming a particular open area. And so finding them based on the bell is a little bit easier sometimes than just looking for them. The bell can also indicate the way a sheep is behaving. So if it's in danger or scared of a predator, the shepherd can tell based on the sound of the bell whether or not the sheep is calm, just moving along in one direction, or behaving erratically. And the bell can be a deterrent for predators who get skittish or confused by different sounds, so the bell itself just could be a helpful measure in protecting sheep or a flock from a predator. And it seems, based on my reading, that some shepherds have uh, a practice of, you know, one bell for every 20 sheep or something like that. So mixed in the herd, you have kind of coverage of the different sheep and their activity, and you can monitor that by the bell. Where the terrain that sheep are grazing or sheep are located is hilly instead of flat, you could have to do a lot of walking or riding your four-wheeler or whatever before you find them because you don't have a clear view line 
of the terrain. So the bell can really help because you can hear that even if you can't see the sheep. So that's what my research has determined so far. I really wanted to talk to my cousin Lisa, and I plan to. We just haven't been able to get it together to have a conversation on the phone. But I know she has a fascination with these valet black nose sheep as well. And I wanted to ask her some questions about what she knows about them and their fiber and the general practice of bells on sheep, etc. So I'll bring a fuller report in a later podcast after I get time to have a conversation with her about it. I will link to some articles about the couple who brought this breed to Rhinebeck, Martin and Joy Daly. They did have a talk on Saturday morning, but I didn't attend because I didn't get to the festival until later. But what I found out in my research is that they're from the Willamette Valley in Oregon, which, oh my goodness, if the gorgeous wine that they make there wasn't enough reason for you to go to the Willamette Valley, you could see these sheep. Amazing. They have a farm. They raise breeds and are interested in AI, artificial insemination. They have added this breed, the Valley Black Nose Sheep, to their breeding program. And they are inseminating their Teeswater and Gotland ewes. So it's not a pure breed, but they're creating a cross and then selecting based on breed characteristics. And in some of the video, you can see that some of the lambs have these valley black nose characteristics and some do not and they have them to a lesser or greater degree so they will be selecting carefully and then continuing to work on their breeding program so the breed characteristics of this sheep if you haven't seen it uh, is that it's incurably cute <laughs> it has very very long staple length ivory colored um, fiber that has quite a sheen to it. It has a real luster in the fleece and then a completely black nose, almost a completely black face. And it has a very rounded appearance to its face that makes it look very cute and friendly and it also has a super docile and friendly disposition, especially with humans. So that's kind of the natural um, character of the sheep. It's that it's friendly and kind of cuddly. It seemed to me that the fiber, that the fleece on the sheep was very soft but in looking at it, but it's actually quite coarse and I guess one of the things that's happening in breeding with the Teeswater and the Gotland is that it is a slightly less coarse fiber that may have a wider range of applications for hand spinners. Soon their program will offer fiber, uh, but I didn't see any at the festival and I, I wasn't able to obtain any there. Tammy of Wing and a Prayer Farm said that she had spun some. And 
mostly what I'm left with after doing a bit of research on this sheep is more questions because there were full-grown sheep at Rhinebeck. But the breeding program in Oregon has only led to lambs so far. It's only just begun in the spring, and so it hasn't been enough time to lead to a full-grown sheep. So I'm left with a lot of, lot of questions. But I hope when I talk to my cousin Lisa, I'll be able to get some of them answered. And if anyone who's listening was able to attend their talk at Rhinebeck, I'd love to know some of the insights you gathered if you have the time to drop a line. My overall impressions of the festival were, well, the weather was just really conducive to wearing knitwear. So that was first and foremost a joyous thing about this year's festival. I really like seeing all the varieties of the Humulus sweater. There were a lot of people wearing that. And in general, color work yoke sweaters were extremely popular. I enjoyed introducing Samuel to um, many of the attendees of our retreat. We had a meetup on Saturday, and he was also able to see many people that he's familiar with because he's met them already, like Carol and Mary Jane and Abby, Amy and Corinne, Lisa and Sophia. So I was able to introduce him to some other folks that I've talked about a lot at home, but he hasn't met. And I really was pleased with the location and all of the amenities of our Airbnb. Even though it was really a drag to spend Saturday afternoon and early evening in the terrible traffic, I love staying near Rosendale, New York. And our Airbnb this year was in close proximity to Mary Beth and her family. So we were able to spend a lot of time together in the evening, even though We didn't see each other a lot at the festival. So that was really a plus and something I hope to rent again because having the the comfort and the ease and being in such close proximity to Rosendale, one of our favorite little New York towns, was, was great. So there's always so much more to say, but you'll watch the other podcasts and you'll see their haul and if you weren't at Rhinebeck, you still have a chance to get the all of the lowdown and all of the, the shopping fix vicariously through the other podcasters. I have a poem to share with you this week. It's titled Mending Time, and it's by David Mason, an American poet who is living and writing today. It includes the term bellwether, the definition of which is the leading sheep in a flock, or more generally, we use it to mean an indicator or a predictor of something. Mending Time by David Mason The fence was down. Out among humid smells and shrill cicadas, we walked, The lichened trunks, moon blue, our faces blue, 
and our hands. Led by their bellwether bellies, the sheep had toddled astray. The neighbor farmer's woods, or coyotes might have got them, or the far road. I remember the night, the moon-colored grass we waded through to look for them, the oaks tangled and dark, like starting a story midway. We gazed over seed heads to the barn, toppled in the homestead orchard. Then we saw the weather of white wool, a cloud in the blue, moving without sound as if charmed by the moon, beholding them out of bounds. Time has not tightened the wire or righted the barn. The unpruned orchard rots in its meadow, and the story unravels, the sunlight creeping back like a song with nobody left to hear it. It's a mighty fine, a mighty fine nature thing. It's a mighty fine, a mighty fine nature thing. Leaves lay down like a lady waiting for a naked man. River bends like an elbow, turning stone to sand. It's a Thanks for listening. Music for this episode is so sweet. Music and lyrics by Samuel St. Thomas, performed by Bovine Social Club. Eat well and stay strong as you hone your post-apocalyptic skill set this week. Six turkeys up in munch
preacher's herb is gonna get you high, you better tell your face to smile. Jump in the river naked and hang your country mind and say, sweet nature, sweet nature, thing. Yeah.